This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 120. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. Welcome, Casper. Could you introduce yourself, please? Hi, Kristen. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Casper Terkyle, and I'm a Ministry Innovation Fellow at Harvard Divinity School and uh, the author of a new book called The Power of Ritual. Which we will get into. But before we do, <laughs> um, Harvard Divinity School actually does sound like Hogwarts. So <laughs> what do people study there? Yeah, it's so interesting. I grew up not at all religious. So it was very confusing to my family when I was like, I think I'm going to divinity school. Um, you know, I've always been very suspicious about religion. I, I'm gay. So I think inherently much more resistant to <laughs> to religion. Um, certainly as a younger person, I was, I was, you know, I was like, either religion is irrelevant or it's cruel. Uh, I didn't see any value in it. But I um, was a climate activist. So I was really involved in mobilizing young people around the United Nations negotiations on climate change. And I felt like we were constantly failing. You know, climate is such a difficult issue to communicate about to the general public because it's both, um, it's hidden in terms of place. So for the majority of people who live in the Western world, it feels like the impacts of climate change are somewhere else. And then it's also far away in terms of time, right? It's like, this is going to impact future generations more than it's impacting current generations. So it's very, very difficult to try and build urgency around. And I realized that that like to try and change, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the policies that impact climate change, it's not enough just to look at the politics, but you have to think about the paradigm in which we live. So how do we understand our relationship to the natural world and one another? And the more I thought about that, the more I was like, you know what, there's something about religion <laughs> that knows how to do that, uh, right? Religions are always interested in changing culture and changing behavior. Um, and so I entered divinity school with the idea of like learning about religion so that I could, you know, apply it to, to social movements. But I ended up really falling in love with it as a discipline. You know, the idea of people, you know, thinking about what it means to be human and, and what does it mean to be in relationship with one another and experience transcendence and, um, you know, what, what does connection really mean? Um, those things just started really, really interesting me. So, you know, ostensibly I have a master's in divinity, which means I studied theology, but I also studied a lot of the, the practical elements of, um, you know, how do you lead a community? How do you create ritual? How do you, um, help people process, uh, through grief, uh, and loss. How do you celebrate things like a birth or, or an anniversary? Um, so it's a very, uh, there's a lot of practical elements in the training as well. So it was, um, I mean, I know it couldn't just be focused on um, Christianity because Vanessa was there, but um, was it, did it, how did it, how was it organized again? Did they just look at, let's say the five biggest religions or how? It's a how great question. Yeah, and it's it, Harvard is very unusual in this because most traditional divinity schools or seminaries uh, or rabbinical schools will be just for one tradition. So you might become a Lutheran minister, right, or a Catholic priest or a, a reformed rabbi. Um, but the divinity school at Harvard has had a much longer religious uh, kind of multiplicity history. So um, it started by having multiple Christian denominations in the early 20th century um, and then expanded to have multiple different religious uh, uh, traditions 
represented. But now, because, you know, more and more people are less and less religious, people like myself, you know, I was like a little gay atheist who showed up and I was like, do I belong here? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, sure. So, you know, in my class, I had someone who was a herbalist. I had, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe 30, 40% were kind of um, preparing to become a, a traditional religious leader. But a lot of people were either interested in philosophy and ethics, or maybe, um, you know, they, they grew up with a, a sort of pagan background, or a lot of people said they were two things, right? Like, well, I'm both Hindu and I'm Christian. Um, so there's a lot of interesting mixing uh, and difference showing up at the Divinity School, which made the classroom a very, very interesting experience, because you're, you're hearing from so many different perspectives. I can absolutely imagine that. And I think I, I can imagine, I, I, I've had this feeling for a long time that, like, at some time, like, in my end of my 40s, beginning of my 50s, like, that's totally what I'm probably going to hit, hit up at some point as well, like, I'm pretty sure, yeah. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So, I like that you kind of also emphasize the practicality of it. So, it's not necessarily just about, you know, stories about people who lived a long time ago. Now, at the time of this recording, we're both, I mean, I, had, I assume you're at home um, yes, yes, uh, due to uh, the coronavirus. And what can spirituality do for people who are like yourself, um, maybe not religious, but still have spiritual needs, especially during scary times like this? You know, Kristen, this is the biggest discovery that I had during divinity school, because I have always thought about religion as it's about what you believe, right? Like, it's so much about, uh, you know, know, knowing these old stories, and do you believe that they're true? And is Jesus really your Lord and Savior? You know, like that kind of thing. But that is a very, very... I think, limited understanding of religion. Uh, because for so much of the world outside of Christianity, religion is much more about what do you practice. So, uh, you know, do you honor your ancestors with particular rituals? Do you eat this food or not eat this food? Um, you know, do you say these prayers or not say these prayers? And, and whether you believe that the literal words that you're saying are true or not is kind of irrelevant. Um, and so we live in this very kind of Protestant paradigm of understanding religion, which makes us blind to a lot of the world's religious traditions and what really is at their beating heart. So your question is important because by focusing on the practices, actually, all of these beautiful traditions are allowed to come alive, even if you're someone who's like, well, I don't really believe this, you know, or like, this doesn't seem that interesting. But if you start to think about, you know, the number of people who walk the the, the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, right, there's been this enormous growth in people doing this kind of three, four week uh, walk from, from France into Spain, even if they're not religious, because it's the practice of walking that has some sort of impact on you, um, right, uh, th that maybe you're able to process grief or you're able to mark a transition. Um, if you think about the way in which, uh, obviously, mindfulness uh, meditation has had this explosion recently, it's a practice of concentrating your attention on something. And you don't have to believe anything for, for that practice to be powerful. Now, at the same time, often those practices end up shaping us so that we see the world differently. That's a different conversation. So in, in, in this moment, you know, where, where so many of us are, are anxious, where we're at home, where we don't know when this lockdown is going to end, uh, you know, we might be worried about loved ones um, who are at risk of the, of the virus. 
Um, and certainly a lot of people have lost their jobs. You know, the impacts are enormous. How do you find a sort of rhythm uh, in your day when you don't have the usual habits of you? Know, maybe you're going to work, maybe you're going to see friends for dinner. All of that is gone. So I, I really think that those practices can become anchors in our daily life now, whether it is something like mindfulness meditation or whether it's taking like a walk around your neighborhood once a day and really focusing on gratitude, you know, n- noticing, wow, I see this beautiful tree. I'm grateful for the tree. Look at the, you know, look at the sky. I see the clouds moving. I'm grateful for the sky and allowing your imagination to kind of create a daisy chain of gratitude. So one gratitude reminds you of another and suddenly you're reminded of your grandma and then you're reminded of, you know, the game that you used to play with your family and, you're reminded, and you know, you, you build this kind of chain of gratitude. Um, those kind of practices, I think, can become so important for us now when we don't have the usual rhythms uh, of daily life. Yeah, so I can I can hear from just from the energy that comes off of your descriptions of this that a lot of these things that you described are rituals. Now, yeah. did you have a specific, um, I don't know, did something specific spark that interest in rituals or was it more of a gradual yeah. understanding? What happened that made you focus that you were like, of all the interesting things <laughs> that we learned in divinity school, I want to yeah. write my book about rituals. What made you do that? Well, to some extent, it was about rediscovering what I already knew. You know, I, I I grew up without a religious background, but at the same time, I went to a Waldorf school, a Steiner school, as a child. Um, and uh, some some listeners may be familiar with this education system, which is very focused on creativity. It's about the holistic development of the child. Um, and so, what I grew up with actually was a lot of rituals. Uh, you know, we would sing together. Um, I remember when I was like nine, I had to fill a cow horn with with cow dung, uh, put it into the ground, and dig dig up a similar horn that was, you know, put in the ground by someone five years ago because it became this highly fertile (laughs) compost for the school gardens. And of course, it was this signal of, you know, like, you know, passing on something that someone else will be able to use, you know, so it it was full of meaning. But I I looked back once I was in divinity school and I was like, oh my gosh, like I didn't have the, the kind of the theological believing part of religion, but I actually did have a lot of the ritual part of religion. And that's what I love. Um, you know, in my own life, my husband and I, every Christmas time, we host a black tie Christmas carol sing-along party where, you know, just at our apartment, we have everyone, you know, dress up in their most beautiful ball gown or their, the most handsome tux. Um, and they, you know, we create, a, a, we print out all our favorite Christmas carols. And my husband's a former musician. So a lot of his friends are wonderful singers. And everyone comes and we just sing for a couple of hours. And, and Sean has baked delicious food. And, you know, there's cakes everywhere. So it, it's this really joyful expression of coming together, celebrating the festive time. But it doesn't really have anything to do with like little baby Jesus. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, now, you, you could say that what we're doing by bringing people together and remembering joy joy uh, in the midst of, you know, the, the darkest time of the year, actually that is fulfilling what Christmas was all about, you know? So it's kind of like reinterpreting the tradition in a way that makes sense today. So I ended up focusing on ritual because it felt like, oh, this is something I already had. I just didn't know it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. Now in the self-improvement world, people are pretty obsessed. And I don't say that with any judgment because I think habits are helpful. Yeah. Um, they're obsessed with habits and rituals and habits, they they do share like some commonalities. Yes. But would you like to talk a little bit about the relationship between the two of them? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, you think about growth hacking, you think about all the ways in which we're looking to kind of, you know, make make our lives as, as productive as possible and as streamlined as possible. And there's a lot of wonderful stuff about that. You know, I read those blogs too. <laughs> um, but I, I think you're exactly right. They're similar, but different. And the similarity is that, you know, you, you might do them habitually, right? Like you, you brush your teeth every day, but that doesn't make it a ritual. The three things I always look for for the difference between habit and a ritual is that uh, a ritual has an intention. So before that you do it, you're coming to that ritual with some sort of desire for meaning. You know, maybe you want it to, to be a moment of celebration or a moment of grief or a, you're marking a transition, right? Like there's, there's an intention. You want it to mean something. Then while it's happening, you're paying attention. So rather than like listening to a podcast while you're brushing your teeth, which is great, but that's a habit. If you're paying sustained attention during the practice, it's more ritualistic. And then finally, repetition, so that you're repeating, you're coming back to this practice over and over again. So if you think about, um, you know, it might be uh, uh, something for me that's become really important that kind of fits both of these uh, categories of like self-improvement <laughs> and, and a ritual is um, doing a tech Sabbath. So every Friday night, I when it becomes dark outside, building on the, the Jewish Sabbath tradition, I turn off my phone, I turn off my laptop, I hide them away so that they don't distract me by being visible. And then I light a candle and I sing a little song to myself. So I'm kind of making, you know, making it a ritual transition. And for me, it's become so important because it kind of marks this difference between the working time when I'm oriented around, you know, achievement and improvement and then this time of rest. And I think that's something often missing a little bit in the kind of growth hacking narratives is like if we're constantly looking to improve, we will burn out. It is exhausting, you know, and so you need these moments of reprieve and not just like relaxation and sleep, but it's like really like delighting in rest. Um, and for me, that's what this tech Sabbath time has become kind of from Friday night to Saturday night is like no one can reach me. <laughs> it's it's just this delightful. I Honestly, I feel like I'm going on vacation. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's that's one practice. This has become really important. I had I had a brief moment just before before we started talking where I forgot for like five seconds that you, um that the U.S. is six hours behind and suddenly I'm like oh my god it's Casper's tef tech Sabbath like w what's happening and then I'm like oh he's on the East Coast it's fine we're good <laughs> now you advocate um this and you're very strong about this but I still wanted to talk to you about this idea because on the one hand I love. I love and human, humans have always been doing this, right? So we would look at something like the Jewish tradition and be like, wow, that is amazing. Um, I've also done a Sabbath or two myself. So I know that these things can nice. be really, really good for you. But then recently, we've also had more of these talks around appropriation. And okay. I, I'm asking you also for very selfish reasons, because on, on, I'm I still have no idea how to make sense of it. Now, for our listeners who are not maybe familiar with what appropriation is, basically, um, it means that, you know, somebody usually from a more of a mainstream culture will go to a more marginalized group and take yeah. a certain aspect of it and kind of, you know, nobody knows that, um, you know, maybe a specific herb or something, and then suddenly they sell it big in mainstream That's or like right. hip hop, you know, like the white rapper, which can be problematic, right? Um, yeah. And I don't, I don't know how to think about this yet in a way that that has that I feel at peace with this topic. Because on the one hand, I'm like, we just cannot um, stop learning from each other. 
But then right. they're also like, yeah, where are the boundaries? How do you think about this, Casper? It's so it's such an important question. I'm really glad you asked it, Kristen, because you're exactly right. The moment when it becomes really difficult is when people with power go to a culture or or a, or a tradition that has less power like take something and then, you know, use it for their own good. And often, as you said, like repackage and often sell it. Right. Um, and that's, that's when it's really difficult. My, my way of engaging this, because I think you're completely right. Like, it's not like we want to stop learning from one another. And honestly, like choosing, choosing to ignore one another is simply ahistorical, right? Religious traditions have always shaped one another. They don't travel through time, you know, through pneumatic tubes where they're, where they're not interacting. Culture is alive and always changing. So that, that's just going to happen. But the way in which we can do it can have integrity. And for me, the key to do that is relationship. So I didn't start doing this, this tech Sabbath practice until I'd learned about it from Jewish friends. <laughs> so I, I'm lucky enough that I have many, many uh, friends who are Jewish in my life now. Um, and, and I've participated in, in Shabbat services and, uh, uh, and have really, uh, you know, delved into the, to the history of the practice. One of my big inspirations was reading a wonderful Jewish theologian, uh, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel's book called The Sabbath, where he's really writing about what this tradition means and, and, and how to live it. Um, and I, I really received it as a gift. Gift. Um, and so I think that that's something that feels safe and, and respectable to me. And because I'm in relationship with so many friends who are Jewish, I would not, for example, take an indigenous uh, uh, practice from, you know, uh, First Nation people, uh, uh, Native American people here in the U.S. because I, I don't have a rich enough understanding of the tradition, nor do I have enough relationships of trust. Um, so one of the things that I find troubling, for example, is you see, uh, you know, more and more kind of like yoga studios just being like, okay, we're going to burn some sage or we're going to do, you know, uh, uh, even ayahuasca ceremonies, right, are more and more proliferating. Um, and, and it's challenging because on the one hand, you know, it, it Sometimes it really helps people, uh, and you want to be able to share that gift. But I think unless you have those binds of, of trust and relationship and learning, um, it's very easy to go wrong. And you end up potentially, you know, both disrespecting the tradition, but also potentially harming the participants because you're not really aware of the, 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 the depth uh, of the practice itself. Okay, all right. So how do you get inspiration to come up with your own rituals? Yeah. Well, the first thing I think to do is to sort of do a little ritual inventory of your life. And I'm especially always interested in what are the, you know, maybe there's really important relationships from when you were younger, maybe your parents or grandparents, neighbors, teachers, uh, um, you know, or maybe there were national festivals or, or traditions that you grew up with, uh, maybe religious ones, maybe ones in nature or involving, you know, favorite foods. Um, but for me also, like, you know, I love the Oscars and I love the, the Met Gala which is always in the, the first Monday in May or the start of the, of the uh, you know, the British soccer season, the football season. Um, so like all of those for me are also rituals, right? I'm not just looking at the kind of the religious context, but I'm, I'm looking at how our life can be enriched by all of these kind of ritual moments. So the first thing I would recommend is start by looking at what you already have. What did you already grow up with? And find the thing in it that was really precious. You know, maybe it's, it, it, it's a, a specific activity. Maybe it's a specific 
song, uh, or maybe it's the whole the whole experience, right? And and then find ways to translate that into your life now. So uh, it, it's absolutely fun to kind of make up new things, but I always invite people to start by looking by w- at what they already have, because honestly, those are the things that are most meaningful. Um, it's like a really good um, you know pot, right? Like if if you have um, some layers of flavorful, <laughs> like in a skillet, right? Like you have you have some previous uh, um, pieces of, of of flavor that are still in the in in the skillet. Your next dish is going to be even more delicious, uh, and it's kind of the same thing with ritual. I think like if we have these accretions over time, if we have these kind of echoes of of uh, of history within what we're doing, it's always just that more fun, that more, much more meaningful. Nice. So um, I don't know if your book is slanted that way, but did you um, look at any, I don't know, research on the benefits of ritual? Yeah, there's some really interesting work out there. Um, so the, the book is kind of structured looking at four four layers of connection in which rituals help us feel more connected. Connection to self connection to one another, connection to the natural world, to nature, and then connection to transcendence. Uh, and in each of those four kind of frames, I look at research that that um, demonstrates the ways in which these practices help our well-being. Um, so it might be, you know, reducing anxiety through ritual uh, behavior, which help, you know, helps us feel more grounded in ourselves. Or the ways in which, you know, getting outside, um, and whether it's through walking or cycling or, uh, you know, anything that gets us out into nature has all of these amazing impacts on our on our mental well-being and our physical well-being. Um, so in, in each of the layers, um, you know, there, there's amazing science that illustrates how, how these rituals are helpful for us. And I ended up actually inviting um, Daka Keltner, who's one of the leaders at the Berkeley Greater Good Science Center, to write the foreword because, you know, he has all of this amazing uh, uh, kind of the scientific evidence, and then I have the, like, religious practice and scholarship. Um, so I actually led him on a uh, – we were in Paris at the same time very randomly, and I led led him on this little pilgrimage um, to the oldest church in Paris. And then we kind of did all the things that you would expect to do in a church. You know, we, we, we gave money to the person who was begging outside. We, uh, before we walked into the church, we actually circumnavigated it. So we walked around it in silence, which is a, a traditional monastic practice of before you arrive at the destination, you walk around your destination uh, uh, in, in silence. And then once we were inside, you know, we, we, we kneeled in front of the altar and all these kind of things. Um, and then we talked about, well, what was it about the these practices that make that make this meaningful, that make it impactful for our lives. Um, and he was able to tell me about, you know, fabulous research that was happening. So, yeah, although this is, I think science can help us tell us why it's important. Um, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't always know how to answer the question like, well, so how do you design it? You know, what do you do? And that's what I think these traditions can teach us. That's so funny. Um, before we started recording, I told you, right, that the first podcast or like I listened to I think the first one was actually Dr. Keltner's lecture really yeah in a Buddhist psychology or something like that that's yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's a small world it's a small world (laughs) wow that is wonderful so tell me about something about like what was your favorite section or favorite part of the book like just one or or I don't maybe I'm asking you to choose between your children or something but (laughs) but just whatever comes to mind yeah well one of the ones that was a real joy for me to write was in the very first chapter when I'm writing about connecting to self you know uh, I I co-host the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text as you know 
And, it, you know, I've had now, gosh, nearly four, four and a half years of, uh, of practicing sacred reading. And I, you know, I didn't grow up with this tradition at all. It was completely new to me. Um, and I'd always assumed that reading was like, yeah, you read for fun or you read to learn, but that's kind of it, right? And so in divinity school, learning that there were these practices, uh, and we really focused on Jewish and Christian reading practices, um, ways in which you can engage text to not just look at like what's happening in the story, but what can I learn for my own life? Um, and of course, we were learning in divinity school to do that with with the Bible. And I was like, well, shmeh, you know, uh, okay, but like this text doesn't feel like it belongs to me. You know what does? Harry Potter. So why don't we do the same kind of reading practices that, that people have been doing with sacred texts like the Bible or the Quran, but instead do it with the Harry Potter books. Um, and it's been amazing to see, you know, how obviously how the podcast has grown and, you know, tens of thousands of people listening, uh, you know, all around the world to each episode. And it's what I love about it is it's not that we're introducing something really new, but it's helping people do something that they love already reading Harry Potter, but doing it with even more kind of rigor and imagination. Um, and so one of the practices is called Lexio Divina, which literally just means sacred reading in Latin. And this was a monastic practice that um, really developed as as monks were um, were trying to kind of look behind the initial meaning of a text. So like, what's the deeper meaning into it? And there's this wonderful monk uh, called Guijo II, who wrote in the 13th century, he's kind of instructing uh, others how to do this practice. And he says, the first step is that you have to look for the literal meaning, like what's literally happening, um, which of course, that's what we all do all the time. But then he says, I want you to think allegorically, like what, what, what does your imagination think of when you think of this piece of text? So maybe there's a word that reminds you of a, of a Greek myth or, or of, a, of an Abba song or, you know, like you just let your imagination run wild and you start to have this much broader set of references that this little piece of text, a sentence or even a few words holds, right? Like, so they're all, they're connected to just that little bit of text. And then he says, now this is the way we translate it, of course, think about your own life. Like what, what in your own life, uh, does this piece of text remind you of? So maybe that Abba song, you know, Waterloo <laughs> reminds you of, uh, you know, when I went to the, the battlefields in Belgium, uh, as a little boy with my mother and we went to visit, you know, the, the, the great battlefield of Waterloo. And it's reminding me of, you know, the, the, the terrible loss of life in war maybe. Um, so that's kind of the next layer. That third layer is thinking about your own life. And then finally, he asks, well, what is the action that you feel called to take now? Uh, and he would use this language of saying, you know, what is God asking you to do? The way we ask it is, what is the text asking you to do? And so it's it, reading this, this little passage through these different steps ultimately leads you to take an action. So maybe it's, you know, I, I want to visit a war memorial and pay my respects. Or maybe it's I want to donate to an organization that supports veterans. Or, you know, maybe I just want to think of my, you know, a family member who, who died in battle. Um, so, so it's this wonderful way of taking text that feels static, right? It's always the same text when you open the book. And it enriches and makes it come alive because it's actually the text becomes a mirror and my own life becomes the real text. And, and the book that I'm reading becomes like a key that opens my life to this richer, deeper experience. So writing about that in, in, in the chapter about connecting to yourself was such a joy because, you know, we've been doing this practice for years now with listeners all over the world who, who call into the show and tell us about how their sacred reading of the text has shaped their life. And, you know, people end up making 
big decisions, right? Maybe they decide, I remember one woman so specifically, she said, you know, I've been thinking about this for so long, but I finally, because of a sacred reading, I'm going to adopt a child. I thought like, wow, you know, something so small, like a little sacred reading practice can have such a big impact on someone's life. Yeah. And, and what I liked about this is really that it's, it's not, there's sometimes this snobbish distinction and I'm, I'm very over it, you know, like what the critics like and what is high literature and what is this right. or sacred or right. not. And I love that you're like in the same breath, it's the Bible and an Abba song. And, and I think that's, there's a way <laughs> of looking at the world that if you can, if you can see those things all as um, sources yeah. of inspiration, as sources yes. of joy and happiness, um, you're, you're going to be at least somewhat okay in most environments. Because Absolutely. you're not always, you're not just like, oh, I can only be okay if I listen to, you know, the best classical music. You're like, no, you can find, you know, something great everywhere. And I, I, I kind of marvel at how excited you are because I think, you know, listeners who don't listen to the podcast might not know that you've been doing this for most <laughs> weeks for five straight years. I think you took a little yeah. break now last August, but like yeah. <laughs> for every and and yeah, you 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 vary it. So it's not always Lexio Divina. Sometimes you do um, right. you do other things as well, other practices. Um, but that you still have so much joy and so much um, you get so much out of it and so much energy when you speak mm. about it, that, mm. that just, that just tells me that it's a wonderful antidote to this whole, all of us are prone to novelty seeking, right? And what yeah. you seem to describe is actually something that is almost like some kind of fountain of wisdom, but, mm. but regenerates itself. It's like, it's just there. It's, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, that's, well, firstly, thank you. That's very generous. And, and I, I completely agree with you in the sense that, um, you know, I think our culture is very oriented towards, you know, what's new, what's, what's different, like go and seek your thrill. Like what's the country that no one's been to that now everyone wants to go to. And, and to some extent that discovery is beautiful, right? Like it's, it is fun to discover, it is fun to do new things, but I think the danger is that sometimes you're always skimming along the surface and, and that the joy of committing to a practice of saying like, okay, I'm going to read Harry Potter as a sacred text for five years, you know, in a community is that you get to see new layers of depth over time. And, uh, you know, although the text doesn't change, of course, my life changes. And so every time that I come back to the text, there's new insights that I have because of my life, you know. Uh, so think about, you know, in, in religious culture, the, the, the Jewish Passover celebrations, right? The famous story that Jews read every Passover is the Exodus story. It's the mm -hmm. escape of, 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 you know, the people who were enslaved out of Egypt. And, and, and the challenge, the invitation to the readers every year is to say, okay, hey, who this year or, or, or what is my Pharaoh, right? Like who is, the, who is the king of Egypt who is enslaving me? Like, you know, is it a horrible boss that I have? Or maybe it's my, you know, obsession with money or, or maybe, it's my, maybe it's my addiction to alcohol. Like, what, you know, it's, it's an invitation to think what is, what is the thing that's enslaving me and what's the liberation that I'm looking for in my life? And so that way the story is always just an invitation to look at my life and see something new. Um, and I think that that practice uh, is, is such a joy because it means you're always, you know, you could do, I think you can do Lexio Divina with a milk carton. I'm going to take this quick moment to tell you that I actually did do Lexio Divina with 
the milk carton, and I'll let you know at the end of the episode how that turned out. But back to Casper now. Right, like I th- just to some extent, the text. I mean, there's better and worse things to do Lexio Divina with, but to some extent, you can do this with any piece of text, um, and that 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 is such a joy for me. <laughs> that sounds like an amazing quarantine challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see if that can go on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> so, is there anything that is important to you that you feel like we should know about ritual or about your book um, that we haven't touched yeah. upon yet? I mean, I, I, listen, I think for, for so many of us um, who, who certainly who didn't grow up religious or, or maybe rejected a religious upbringing, there's a real hesitancy about these kind of practices, right? It's like, is this trustworthy? Like, where does this come from? Because religion has done so much damage uh, uh, throughout history. You know, the violence, the abuse, like there's so many reasons not to trust religious institutions. Um, and I guess what I would want to say is that, you know, I really wrote the book for folks who might be just kind of tentatively exploring spirituality. So it's really written for, I like to think of myself as a spiritual beginner. Um, so I'm really writing it for other folks who are kind of, you know, in, interested, a little shy maybe, but but willing to try something. So, you know, maybe you've found like yoga is a really beautiful practice or mindfulness meditation, or uh, you really enjoy singing. Like the, the, these are all practices that very, very much fit in the framework that I that I try to, to advocate for within the book. Um, because I think we're in a really big moment of, of shifting paradigms of how we understand spirituality and religion. I, you know, more and more we're seeing the scientific evidence base for these practices um, that, that, that explain why they've been so persistent over time. You know, why have people come back time and time again uh, to storytelling or to eating together or even to something like prayer uh, or, or confession? There's something in these practices that helps us live the kind of life that we want to live. Um, and, and now we have the scientific data to prove it. Um, so I, I hope that for anyone who feels like mm, this is a little, <laughs> a little wacky, like you know, don't be afraid and, and, and feel, um, emboldened that there is something in here for you. Yeah. And I mean, I think if people, um, it's kind of a little bit like meditation, right? So people used to be hesitant about meditation for the same reasons, because they thought, oh, am I somehow betraying my own religion? Or am I inadvertently getting into religion? And I mean, I would argue you can do mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation or walking meditation without, you know, once thinking about any deity or anything like that at all. So I think rituals are very similar. So, um, Casper, where can people find you? Where's the best place to find you and your book? And what's it called? Yeah. Yeah, so it's called The Power of Ritual. And if you go to powerofritual.org, you'll find uh, all the places where you can buy it. Uh, it's being translated into Dutch and Portuguese. So there you go. Um, and you can uh, follow me on Twitter at TK or Instagram at TK underscore. Um, and uh, yeah, get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. All right. Thank you so much, Casper. It was wonderful to finally have you on the podcast. I'm so grateful. And and thanks for making this podcast, Kristen. I know so many people are grateful to you and your, your commitment and creativity, uh, come, uh, you know, every, every episode. So thank you for that. Thank you. Okay. So I hope you enjoyed this interview with Casper Turkile on rituals. And as I said, in the middle of it, um, I actually did the Lexio Divina, Um, with the milk carton. So let's see how that went. So the first question, if you remember, uh, Casper saying was, what is the literal meaning of what is on, in this case, the milk carton? And 
it's just organic milk from Zurich. It says Mini Region, which is Swiss German for my region. And it even gives the name of the dairy farm so we could check in if we wanted to. What do you think of allegorically? Um, where does your imagination go? Um, there's a little heart above the My Region slogan that makes me feel like I'm fulfilling some patriotic duty by buying local milk as opposed to milk that could be from either anywhere in Switzerland or anywhere in the world. Uh, my imagination refuses to go too far away from the milk carton, um, but it does, you know, the, the design of it does kind of conjure up, you know, images of of nature and it says it was made on Hirzel and I, I believe I've been there but I'm not entirely sure so I don't have concrete images of what it looks like but I, I, I have a pretty fair idea of what it could look like up there. Um, and then finally it says what action are you called to take? And um, there's a certain satisfaction in aligning your values, um, in this case supporting local farmers, making organic food with concrete actions. Um, it's, it's one thing to believe that something is important or true, but it's actually a different thing to put your money in that and to take action in general. And I have to say, um, also in the last few weeks, like doing something about my beliefs as opposed to maybe just talking about them has really kind of made me feel good about it, feels right. And I think, yeah... Did we expect an insight from that from a milk carton or to be reminded of that from a milk carton? Not necessarily, right? So that's the power of sacred reading and this idea that you can apply this mindset to pretty much anything. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help us out by sharing it with your network and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love to hear from you at kristen at strengthphoenix.com. For show notes and more, head over to www.strengthphoenix.com. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt. <laughs> <laughs>